The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of The Liberating Arts. I am Rachel Griffiths, and I'm excited about having a conversation today with Beth Newman, who is a theologian. And the topic of our conversation is going to be on leisure and academic culture. Um, so Beth, I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for um, joining us. Um, and I am um, wondering if we can start by you providing an introduction to yourself and telling us a little bit about your work and interests. Okay, sure. Um, well, I uh, am currently a professor of theology adjunct at Duke Divinity School. Uh, before that, I taught for 17 years at the Baptist Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And um, my work is, I guess, centered on two sort of key themes. Uh, one of them is the unity of the church. And the other is really looking at um, sort of dominant issues in our culture that are raising questions about what it means to be the church or also to be the university or college. So my latest book, since we're talking about leisure, is called Divine Abundance. I'll hold it up here. <laughs> uh, leisure, the basis of academic culture. and really there, I was trying to build on conversations that had been going on for a while, really, about how to rethink um, and reimagine some of the ways we are doing college and university so that we can have a broader, deeper vision of what that is about. Great, thank you. And I'll just add that I read Divine Abundance um, Went pretty soon after it came out, I heard it mentioned at a, at a conference and then went out and got it. Um, and I definitely recommend it. It's really, really wonderful book um, that I think addresses um, some really um, difficult problems in the academy today. Um, and I also heard Beth speak about um, the book and, and some of those ideas at um, Baylor's Institute for Faith and Learning um, conference. So I'm really excited to be able to talk more about it. Um, I was wondering if, um, so we've started a lot of these conversations with um, a definition of the liberal arts. So I'm wondering if you have um, a definition of the liberal arts that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, Rachel, I think, um... Well, when I was thinking about this, the word liberal is related to uh, liber or libre, which is freedom. So I think that's so fascinating to think about that because what is, uh, what are we doing when we teach liberal arts so that we are freeing people? And I think on the one hand, we're trying to free people from uh, restricted or diminished ways of thinking, um, no matter what discipline we're in. And 
uh, opening up their imaginations in new ways that they haven't been exposed to. I mean, I know that was certainly true when I was in college and what I also tried to do when I taught college. So there's that sense of freedom from, but I think the other aspect of freedom is absolutely central as well. And that is what is more positive freedom or freedom for. So what are the liberal arts for? You know, we're freeing people from these restricted or diminished views, but we're, free, we're freeing them for something larger than ourselves. And one way that has been talked about this sort of classically is, are the um, goodness, beauty, and truth. Mm -hmm. And so that there is something that we are aiming to uh, participate in, to embed our lives in so that we are living you know, truly free and faithful lives. And I think both of those components are really necessary because um, without the sort of positive freedom, it can easily just become you know, people going and doing their own things. There's no sort of unitive understanding. And um, that granted is, not, uh, is a process together because it's dynamic and truth mm -hmm. is dynamic. It's something we participate in together. So it's not like we're just sort of plopping it down, but we, we together need all the disciplines in order to discern that more fully. Okay, yeah, really like how you're talking about the positive and negative freedom, which I think comes up um, mm -hmm. yeah. a few times in, in, your, in your book. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so, um, so maybe we'll um, get to my first question about, about the book. Okay, um, okay. So um, in Divine Abundance, you describe an ontological problem with the Academy. Um, can you explain this problem and provide some examples regarding where you see it? Okay. Very good. Um, and that's a great question, Rachel, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, ontology is a very broad uh, term and it refers to how we understand being. So um, what I am try to do in the book is try to say that one of the dominant understandings of being that has shaped the contemporary academy is one that is essentially mechanistic in many ways. So it's being, you know, that being as facts, it's, it's sort of a flattened understanding of being, um, you know, it's like, here's the apple, I've got apple <laughs> it's red, <laughs> you know, it has a green leaf. Um, and then whatever I think about the apple, I mean, I might really like an apple. That's my subjective preference that I sort of impose onto it. And by the way, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, has similar ways of thinking about this as well. Mm -hmm. um, so some people have traced that understanding of being back to nominalism, where you have basically just things that are isolated in themselves like facts, and then mm -hmm. values are things we impose onto them. By contrast, what I am describing in the book, and which I think is so important today, is that one way to say this is that communion is intrinsic to being. In other words, you can't, you can't have being without having communion already there. It's built in to the very nature of who we are. Um, Augustine famously sort of captures this by saying, you know, our hearts are restless mm -hmm. until they rest in thee, O oh God. In other words, there's something about us that's not, it's not just our biological sense, but it's the whole of who we are is geared towards communion. 
with other people and with God. And so in the fall, for example, I mean, one way to read that theologically is that we fall apart from God and from one another and therefore mm -hmm. lose the fullness of being. So, um, yeah, and so I refer to that when I say divine abundance, I, I'm talking about that abundance as living into the fullness mm -hmm. of who we are. And it's not only for us, but for really all creation, um, that all creation or the whole cosmos participates in, if you could say, a divine wisdom, a divine beauty greater than itself. And so when we study different things, it's important to understand, you know, the biological, the chemical piece, but how all of this fits together is also crucial as well, mm -hmm. because to the extent we have this myopic understanding of being, then we also have a myopic understanding of who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> and so that um, is part of what you're seeing is the problem with the academy. Right. And I think, yeah, right. So another way to come at it would be sort of the separation between uh, facts and values. Um, because again, that's an ontology that sort of the facts are there and our values are, are imposed uh, part of things or an imposed part of the nature of things. Um, and that, of course, has been criticized many times over that dualism that comes out of the Enlightenment. And so, you know, in, in postmodernity, it's like, well, we never we no longer have that kind of, you know, we no longer have these objective facts. Uh, but we what we do still have in postmodernity is this sense that values are essentially our choices. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. okay. uh, you know, uh, who I am is what is sort of the culmination of my choices okay and there what i'm arguing is that not all of who we are is explicitly our own choice that there are you know that there are things given to us that we are called to receive um, and essentially you know we are to receive ourselves as gifts from god mm -hmm. so the receptivity piece is really crucial here um, for trying to think differently um, than sort of this, this sort of value choice understanding. Yeah, okay, okay, great. So um, can you talk a little bit about where you see this value as a choice um, in the academy? Okay. <laughs> in in um, perhaps what, you know, what students are seeking, what, professors feel pressured to give them? Yes, yeah, very good. Well, I'll give you a concrete example from um, an one of the institutions I taught out when I was teaching in a college. And we were you know, thinking together about, as faculty, about you know, ourselves and what we're about, like faculty will do, you know, <laughs> argue and debate, which is all very good. But one, in one of the documents um, uh, that was circulated, uh, it was written, we support diversity for diversity's sake. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that, you know, if there's nothing to give any sort of um, meaning or fuller purpose to diversity, then it can quickly break down into everybody doing their own thing. Um, even within a department, <laughs> you know, well, this is what I choose to do. This is what you choose. I mean, so 
I mean, diversity, it can be a very good thing um, when it's used in a way to bring together and to reconcile. So we're, we're working towards unity. But if diversity is simply each doing their own thing, then, um, then there's a real problem there. And I, I will say, I was looking back uh, at just, uh, this is something I'd written elsewhere, not in the book, but a lot of people are familiar with the story of the blind man and the elephant. And if you're not, it's where all these, uh, these six or seven blind men come before an elephant and each one has a different part of the elephant, like the trunk, mm-hmm. um, you know, the legs, the tail. And the point, there's a poem written about it. And so, you know, the, each man's claiming each part of the elephant. And um, the, the moral of the story is that no one is supposed to say, ah, you know, I have the elephant, you know, because mm-hmm. you only have the tail part, you only have this part. And so, yeah, I mean, so there's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, implication that we should have diver- we should have uh, humility about the particular truths that we have, mm-hmm. um, but the and that's certainly a Christian virtue. Uh, yeah, we definitely want humility. Uh, but the whole uh, the whole story, I would say, that's forming that understanding of diversity, really comes out of a kind of um, Kantian uh, understanding of reality where the noumenal is completely inaccessible in a sense. And all we have is our own human efforts. Okay, yeah. So. Yeah, I was reviewing your book this morning as I was preparing for this conversation and I highlighted um, a sentence that I think might um, kind of speak to what, what you're saying. For all the lip service then paid to diverse values and the encouraging of critical thinking, the modern academy easily serves one purpose to prepare the student to compete. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah. There's always there's always an underlying story there that is that is shaping how we think about things. Yeah. And that's, um, um, you know, that feeds in so much to really a kind of utilitarian understanding of education that mm-hmm. um, uh, that, uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, in capitalism, we are our choices. Um, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. they are. And so then education too becomes sort of absorbed into that. And um, yeah. And so is there an alternative formation other mm-hmm. than just competing in the marketplace that we have to offer? And yeah, yeah and we hope there is. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I, I hope so too. Um, so you've, you've touched on this a little bit. Um, so the story that's being told about the Academy, um, and I think you, when you talked about your definition of the liberal arts, um, the idea of uh, freedom from diminished thinking or freedom mm-hmm. to reimagine mm-hmm. um, certain things about, about life or about study. Um, so could you talk about some distorted stories that you see about the Academy? Yeah, okay, very good. Um, I think, well, one that comes to my mind um, right now, just in light of what we've been talking about is the story that wants to pit uh, faith uh, versus knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that is a story that, again, I mean, we can sort of track it historically, but um, that's really in many ways um, been the story of the modern academy <laughs> because you, know, you have like the faith or the church over here and then the university or the college over here. 
as if they're doing different things and they are doing distinct things but often then that sort of re reiterates this idea that you have faith in this sphere and knowledge in this sphere mm -hmm. and so a lot of the effort has been in terms of looking at uh, Christian colleges, particularly the demise of them, well, how can we get faith, you know, back into the academy? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the focus has been on, you know, getting the right trustees in some institutions, if they're not already too far gone, <laughs> you know, or campus ministry or clubs or different organizations or sort of, um, sort of these sort of, you know, extracurricular activities. And I mean, those are great. I don't, I mean, I think I'm, you know, I, campus ministers are doing excellent work so I'm not denigrating mm -hmm. that but that still is accepting the model often you know that faith is here and then knowledge is here mm -hmm. and so you know I would say you know God calls us to love with our hearts and our minds and so within the intellectual life of the school I would say just to go back there is always some faith that is being already assumed and to try to name what that is. So it's mm -hmm. not a question of trying to get faith in, but mm -hmm. trying to discern more deeply, well, what is the actual faith shaping the way we think about the intellectual life? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, that reminds me of something that you say in the book also about um, thinking less, you're encouraging readers to think less about getting God back into the academy, but more about becoming persons who are seeking Mm -hmm. um seeking uh let's see i think seeking and listening to god in all places i have right. a note about it uh, yes right um, yeah. <laughs> and then also what you say about in the what you say in the beginning the love of learning and the desire for god are one and the same right um, yeah. Yeah. so um i um was also really interested oh, in what you have said about sloths um as part of as part of this conversation so so you um you say that the academy's focus on productivity and hard work is actually a problem with sloth. Um, can you, um, you know, uh, summarize maybe that argument for people listening to this? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, because the typical image we have of sloth is, well, you know, the creature that is the sloth, you know, mm -hmm. this sort of lazy, uh, sloth is laziness. And um, just to let people know, I mean, this argument that I am making comes from Joseph Pieper, is one who's the one who's put it out there most fully, and he wrote a book on leisure. But Pieper argues uh, that that uh, sloth laziness is a symptom of sloth. It's not itself sloth. But he argues to go to your question, Rachel, that busyness and this hyper productivity and this need to sort of uh, prove your worth by doing, 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 um, that is also a symptom of sloth. So then we have to say, well, what is sloth? And the definition that Pieper puts out there, and it's, uh, it's continuous also with what I think Thomas Aquinas says, and Augustine also has a variation of this as well, that sloth is the failure to be who you are before God. Um, so, okay, now how in the world do we be who we are before God? <laughs> I mean, that's a big thing, but it's, mm -hmm. but and obviously, you know, um, Christians say, uh, understand that we can only do that through God's grace, but it's certainly something that, um, the desire 
to do that is already God's grace at work within us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think that understanding is, is that, that, you know, whether it's, you know, and it could be the other way. It could be uh, someone who says, well, I don't have anything to offer. Why should I even try and mm-hmm. just give up? I mean, that could be, that could also be a sign of sloth. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's uh, seeking to discern and to be more fully who you are before God. And yeah, so that, that requires uh, not just doing, 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 but it requires receiving as well. Okay. Um, can you talk at all about how um, you've helped students in your classrooms to incorporate um, leisure into their into their work to, to in order to combat this? I think I remember you talking about this at the IFL. Um, things that you've done with seminary students. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and I um. Yeah, and it's it was very much an ongoing uh, a challenge for me. I must admit, mm-hmm. yeah, because I'm one of these people that comes in, you know, you know, <laughs> with this whole agenda in my mind of what I want to do, um, which is, you know, doesn't always isn't always the best thing in any case. But yeah, I think well, the past few years I taught. I um, developed, a, and I actually was influenced by some good friends with it, uh, uh, developed a liturgy for learning. And what one of the things I was just trying to show there was that liturgy, which is, by the way, not a word that flows smoothly off Baptist lips, <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, liturgy or worship. But the, we are always, and James uh, K. Smith talks about this as well, we are always involved in liturgies in our life. And so you can think of the classroom as a kind of liturgy. Um, and so I wanted to put that out there. So what does a liturgy of learning look like? And we, um, we did just some very simple things of opening the classroom with responsive reading. Um, with, uh, with Sometimes I would incorporate readings that we would be looking at in class, like from Athanasius, and try to have them in a more meditative um, form. And, you know, then we would have, you know, sort of, you know, so the, the liturgy of, you know, of study then would be our classroom. And then mm-hmm. it would be the liturgy sort of of, um, I can't remember how I phrased it, of uh, or sort of departing. And it would just be a blessing that I would give to everybody. <laughs> so it was fairly simple. But, um, yeah, I think, um, I think the real challenge at the seminary, the real challenge there was how to think more deeply about the integration between our what we did in our chapel also mm-hmm. and the classroom so there was you know anything where it's, it's blurring those boundaries I thought was great you know whether it, you yeah. know so yeah so those were some of the some of the things I did yeah I like how you're talking about blurring boundaries which I feel like that is a good expression for what liberal arts education is you know, yes. should be as yes. well yeah exactly so. Um, can, um, can you talk about, um, how that, where, where you see the, um, struggle with sloth among faculty, um, and maybe administrators, um, we know that students struggle, students struggle with it as well, but I I mean, I think that, I think that we, um, you know, I don't know as much as, as much as we may try to, you know, (laughs) orient students towards you know things more than a job um we are also you know really busy because we are trying to 
keep our jobs, get jobs, that kind of thing. I know, I know it exactly. Right. And I think, um, yeah, and in some ways, the whole, you know, the whole pressure, especially with, for untenured faculty, I mean, the whole pressure there, you know, you to publish mm-hmm. and to, uh, to, to perform in the classroom, it, it doesn't really, you know, you don't get to put on your, you know, your tenure profile. Oh, I had this time for leisure. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so um, and yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, one thing I did really, I was able to do through a grant that I got from the Wabash Center at our seminary is we had some conversations about this and it was sort of combining looking at ways to integrate our disciplines. And so even you think a seminary would be more on board, but more harmonious in some ways, but we were still pretty separated. I'm doing theology. Here's Hebrew Bible. Here's New Testament. So we were all up. So we were, you know, I was, we were thinking together about integration and also um, about leisure. And at least mm-hmm. I was thinking about it and trying to mm-hmm. sort of bring it in. So we got a grant to have a faculty retreat. And that was really quite wonderful. And what we did is we invited alums from the school to our faculty retreat. So we had about 20 alums come and we met out in the woods, you know, this retreat center. Um, this was, by the way, as the institution was, was closing. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. so uh, but in any case, we, it was a wonderful retreat. I mean, it's one of the best things, I, I, you know, my best memories, really, of, of, of the seminary in, in uh, many ways. But, but what it did was it just gave us uh, space. I mean, we had time to walk. We, we sort of interspersed it with some, you know, some prayer, uh, with some good food. And with really deep conversation about, you know, how were you formed at the seminary? What do you think the church needs for us to be doing better? So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, um, I think trying to be, again, going back to blurring boundaries or trying to be creative to think about ways mm-hmm. that we can make space for leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my book, you know, as you know, I argue that leisure does require sort of time set aside, but leisure is also a way of being as well and so I think that's the question of self-reflection how are we allowing ourselves to be formed how are we forming students so that we are capable of being people of leisure and Mm -hmm. by that I mean people open to receptivity to listening to discerning the presence of God with us as we are Yeah, I really love how you phrased that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, so I I feel like that that kind of gets into my next question about the scarcity mindset and a mindset of abundance. Yes. Um, So could you talk about how you define that, the the difference between those two mindsets? Yes, and um, well, I think um, yeah, I mean, abundance, I think we have to begin with the conviction that God provides what we need to be faithful. Okay, in spite of everything, I mean, we've all, <laughs> and we've all been through a whole lot, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, we can all name a lot of things we've all been through. 
um, in this past, you know, year, year and a half, or how long it's been, <laughs> approaching a year and a half. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think it doesn't discount the difficulties we, we face. But I think we do have to start with this conviction that God will provide. And so that's where abundance comes from, is trusting that provision, being open and discerning that. Um, we don't have to do that alone. We're not intended to do that alone. But, um, you know, we are intended to do that in community. Mm -hmm. And um, I think for an institution like a, like a, a college or university that is um, situated, especially within, you know, the Christian tradition, is to always ask themselves, you know, how, where is God leading us? Because that's where God's abundance is. Um, and the scarcity is when we think, you know, I think in the academy particularly, we think we have to make everything happen and we have to make things come out right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I will tell you a story, Rachel, when I was at um, St. Mary's College and we had had some conflict there about the mission statement of the school. This was in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Anyway, and there was, there was some division there as well, but one of the sisters at the school uh, came by my office and I had already been hired to go to a different place at that point. And, but I was feeling very discouraged because, mm -hmm. because it was just like, you know, I, all these things. And I was a part of this, um, this Christian conversation thing that had been, uh, um, um, oh, shoot, I'm blanking on it right now. Um, anyway, it's not coming up, but, uh, um, you know, so we'd had these, but it was, it was, um, I, I didn't feel personally that things were going in the sort of rich way that I had hoped they'd go in terms of the disciplines and the intellectual life of school. But any, the sister came by and gave me this beautiful picture of Jesus washing the feet, of, the feet of his disciples. And she goes to me, she goes, you know, Beth, God does not abandon us. And I just always loved that because yeah. <laughs> here I was, the theologian, you know, <laughs> teaching religious studies. And the sister just comes and says very simply, yeah. God does not abandon us. And, and she, of everybody, I mean, you know, had calls to be concerned. But anyway, that's just saying how the witness of others, I think, in reminding us mm. and keeping yeah. the, and, and the memory is not a past memory. It's a live memory that we have. And it's a future member, memory. How do we remember our future uh, that we need one another to help us with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really great. I, I, I think that we probably need more of those kinds of statements in our classrooms, you know, with our students right. to combat, I think, those um, uh, diminished thinking, I think is the word that you used earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, but when I look at, um, and I'm sure that my institution is not um, the only one that does this, but, it, but if I look at the sort of um, like career trajectory that they chart out for students, you know, like in your junior year, start meeting with career services and then, you know, do the resume workshop and, you know, like all, all of these things that right. it, it really seems that a lot of that, a lot of that narrative that they're being told about what they need to be doing next and how, what they need to be thinking about seems to fall into that, what you were saying, the scarcity mindset. Of, right, right. You know, we, you know, we are the culmination of our choices and we make things happen. And Right, so. yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, uh, yeah, Rachel, that's very, very nicely stated. And it is, I mean, my son's in college right now and he's getting all of that, you know, the yeah. same. But yeah. I think um, 
to me, the language, and I know this has been very much a part of the ongoing conversation of Christian identity and higher education, the language of virtue here is also so helpful. Mm -hmm. So uh, I contrast like values, like these are things we choose versus virtue. Mm -hmm. You know, how are we being formed and mm -hmm. what kinds of persons are we helping to you know, to form. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, you know, if, if an institution, you know, not that you, you know, students are going to be concerned, right. You know, in many ways, un certainly understandably about what after school, but, mm -hmm. but if institutions can also keep that question before them, mm -hmm. you know, how mm -hmm. are we forming our students? What kind of persons do we want? Mm -hmm. um, then that, that might sort of help, you know, help alleviate some of mm -hmm. that constant yeah. pressure. Yep. Yep. I wonder how many times they hear the word job and employment and interview, you know, versus like how do the, how many times do they hear, you know, character, you know, yeah. what, you know, who do you want to be? Like right. yeah. what kind of parent or spouse or neighbor, you know, do you want to be? Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. What's well, funny. Cause I heard, uh, David, uh, L Schindler, who is a Catholic, uh, theologian once say that he told his children when they went to college, you know, uh, he said, I want you, to, when you go to major, I want you to major in something that you can't do anything with. Mm, that's <laughs> so so yeah. it's an opposite, yeah. <laughs> the opposite way you know, for most right. parents tempting temptation to think otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What you were saying about the mindset of abundance, um, it reminded me of, uh, prayer, I think it was by Stanley Hauerwas with the prayers plainly spoken. Am I remembering that correctly that that's his book? I think so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's one, I think there's a prayer in that um, book that says something like we have all the time in the world or you have given us all the time in the yeah. world. Yeah. And, and I, I used that with our faculty yeah. one year, you know, at the uh, beginning yeah. of our faith and learning stuff. Yeah. And, and it's always kind of um, you know, I think it's a challenge to me to think about that because it's so right. hard to think, you know, right. to think like that, that we have all the time in the world we have, you know, God has provided what we need. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great. Yeah. No, actually, that's a great thing. I mean, that's a whole other issue is, you know, how do we think about time? Mm -hmm. um, and is it just this sort of flat homogeneous understanding of time, which would go along with what I was saying earlier about ontology or mm -hmm. is our time, uh, always, in a sense, open to God's presence yes. in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, and in that sense, it can never be diminished. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, right. So that's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hard to think about how um, how to change that thinking about time, though. It is. You know, right. I, yeah. I, I don't know that I have a lot of answers about it, but I think it's right. important at least for us to be talking about. Yeah, no, Rachel, I think you're right. And honestly, I think that that just goes, I think there does need to be uh, certain understandings of rhythms and practices in place that help us uh, not because it's not more than just the head, right? We've got mm -hmm. to be embodied in certain rhythms. And I mean, this is why I think, you know, the monastic understanding of time is so crucial because it was written, it, it's, it's in this daily rhythm of allowing God to place us in God's story rather mm -hmm. than our story. And then we have room for God. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, for the Academy to retrieve something like that, I think is really um, crucial. And I know there's some places that are doing forms of that, but that's certainly what 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought in his book, mm -hmm. Life Together. Okay. I mean, it was a kind of, um, uh, and he wasn't talking explicitly about the academy, but he was writing more broadly about any community needing to have this rhythm that helped them remember who they were. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that would yeah. be. You mentioned um, a couple of places that you have seen that are moving in that direction of incorporating that monastic time. Um, do you have examples of um, programs or, or institutions that you've seen do that? Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, I think there are some initiatives coming out of, um, out of some churches that okay. are trying to do some of that. I think, um, I mean, I'm just, there's one that's just getting off the ground uh, that I'm minimally in, that I'm involved with a little bit. Um, it's called a, a Center for Faith and Life out of a, a First Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it's really just going, but again, they, they are just trying to do something as a church that's geared towards education, that's open to the whole community. Mm -hmm. And um, their hope, I think, is to embed it in this rhythm. Now, right now with, uh, with COVID, mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit more difficult. Uh, also, the Ecclesia Project, I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but that was um, mm -hmm. the Ecclesia Project, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Um, there's an initiative also coming from them that's looked at, looking at education. And Again, it's just it's just in development. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's going to be located in Black Mountain, North Carolina. But again, it's trying to yeah do a sort of reconception of education in some ways that mm -hmm. is more embedded in a liturgical rhythm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those those are yeah. two that come to my mind anyway. Yeah, I I would I would love to see more colleges and universities. Um, incorporating monastic time um, in what they're doing. I would too. Um, I would yeah. absolutely. And I think yeah. along with that, you know, this is one, again, I think it's a challenge, but along with that is having some people actually, you know, living in proximity to one mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. as a way to sort of also um, embody community on behalf of the whole. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that that was the other piece, certainly with Bonhoeffer, but, um, and, and I think there are ways that, you don't have to be Catholic. I mean, I think there are ways that, that Protestants can do that. So. Right. Yep. And college, like, I mean, there's still lots and lots of students who um, go and live and dorm yeah. together and eat together right. and, yeah. you know, go to uh, athletic practices together. And, and there's still a lot, I think, set up, right. you know, that that yeah. could, you know. Exactly. So. Yeah, exactly. That's mm -hmm. a great point. Yeah. Why not? I mean, that's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we've mentioned COVID a couple of times already, um, but I want to draw attention to um, the grant that's funding these conversations, which is called uh, Between Pandemic and Protest. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the COVID-19 pandemic and then um, some of the uh, protests um, that we have had recently regarding racism and justice. Um, have, they, have, have these things um, changed your perspective on education and the liberal arts? Um, in American society? Are there um, things that you think educators need to be thinking about um, because of these um, recent things that are going on? Yeah, Rachel, that's a great question. Uh, let, me, um, let me speak to the protests first, and then I'll, I'll speak to COVID. Okay. 
Yeah, I think definitely the protests. I mean, there are things that I guess our society, myself, others, you know, already knew, but I think the protests have highlighted certainly deep and profound blind spots that we have had in our society. And um, even for me now to hear students um, who are African-American in my class speak out more fully about what their own experience has been like, you know, growing up as a black male. I mean, that's, and it's, I mean, for me personally, it's sort of like, I sort of knew that, but just to hear that testimony, mm -hmm. uh, I think has expanded my understanding of how we need to think about uh, issues of racism. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, diagnosing is always an ongoing problem and that we need to certainly be in the listening frame of mind for, for that. Um, the prognosis, I think, as the church, um, our politics differs from the politics of the nation state. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, the church has been very divided. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I'll speak in my own denomination with Baptists. I mean, you know, you have the more conservative Baptists who are going to be Republican. You have the more liberal Baptists who are going to be Democrat. And, you know, you know, heaven help us if somebody from one went to the other one, you know, and so, so that sort of, I mean, so all that to say, it's not to say there might, you know, not be some good things coming out on the sides, but we have, uh, for the Baptists, we have allowed the nation state to deeply shape our idea of politics. So I think our challenge in light of this is to say, um, look more deeply, and I learned a lot of this from Stanley Harrell, also hope I'm saying it correctly, but you know, what is the politics of the body of Christ? It's not that we have church and politics, but the church already is a politic. Mm -hmm. And so how can we live into that? And yes, it might call for protest. Um, I'm just reading, sort of reviewing this book right now called um, Reading While Black uh, by okay. a New Testament scholar. Mm -hmm. And you know, and so he's talking about protest as being embedded in scripture, you know, in Jesus and, mm. and in Paul and then, you know, going back into the Old Testament. So yes, that might be part of it. Um, um, and, you know, and then how, how then uh, to think about reconciliation as well. So, um, I mean, I think, and that's, a, that's certainly an ongoing challenge, but I think, uh, you know, thinking about it together, our politics as, as the body of Christ and as seeing each other's brothers and sisters in Christ, um, how can we move towards solutions um, that um, go even beyond the law? I mean, because the law can solve certain things, but the law can't entirely heal somebody mm -hmm. um, or the law can't, you know, can't offer forgiveness um, or ask your know, confession. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, and I think with, um, the other one was with COVID. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, on the one hand, it's been great, I think, with COVID to be able to have meetings and to meet with people from around the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I'm involved in, uh, through the Baptist Alliance with Baptist Doctrine and Christian Unity. And so we've been able to meet and have these great conversations. So I think all of that's wonderful. But I, um, I still think that education is incarnational and that 
the primary venue of our education needs to be person to person. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just to think like, uh, you know, some good things can happen on Zoom. I don't want to deny that. Um, and we've all had to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, the, we're making the best of what we have to have. But we certainly, you know, if, if in fact we're integrating leisure, which is contemplation and which is receptivity and which is worship with learning, then that is going to be uh, greatly sort of truncated through Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's, um, that, it, that's one of the things that comes to my mind um, yeah. in terms of the COVID, so. I like how you phrase that as educational being incarnational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I I like that. And one of the things that my my um, college has been meeting in person, um, you know, since last August. And one of the things that I noticed when the students got back in August is that they seem so grateful just to be there in the classroom, yeah. even though half of their face is covered up. You know, like they're <laughs> they're happy to be there. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's just something about being together in person yeah um that's lost yes. you know over to yeah. Or, yeah I, no I think so and I felt that way when we went back to church for the first time and then mm -hmm. and the church yeah. where we go is a very small church but it was like ah oh, you know it's just so good mm -hmm. to see mm -hmm. uh to see other people and to be in their presence mm -hmm. um and yeah so I think it is really grounded in um you know uh, the, the spiritual and the material are deeply intertwined mm -hmm. with one another. Mm -hmm. And so Zoom still allows a kind of presence, but it's not the full presence mm -hmm. of, of us to one yeah. another. So, yeah. yeah. Good. Well, this has been a really um, wonderful conversation. I just want to see if you have anything else that you wanted to say about your work that you think is relevant to the topics that we've covered. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess some. Um, I think in terms of just one comment about my own interest in passion and unity in the church, and then also looking at education and some of the divisions that get going, you know, between faith and knowledge. Um, I think those two are interrelated. And the reason, well, one of the reasons I say that is because when I went to, um, when I first went up to teach at St. Mary's, uh, people were, you know, very welcoming and everything, but there was a little hesitancy. I mean, I was Protestant, you know, teaching in the Catholic, you know, department, and that was pretty rare. I mean, there was one other one there, but I think there was a little hesitancy to engage me because it's like, oh, well, we don't want to offend her. I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. speculating, <laughs> but, you know, there, there wasn't a full, uh, you know, a full orbed discussion, and not only in the department, across the college, there wasn't a full orb discussion about Catholic identity. And I really wanted that because I thought, well, this will help me know more fully what it means to be Baptist. And, mm -hmm. you know, Pope John Paul II talked about the uh, ecumenism as the exchange of gifts. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for, for people to embed themselves more richly in their particular Christian tradition actually promotes the unity of the church. Now, there could be a way to do that, obviously, where you close mm -hmm. yourself off, but to really go deep into your own tradition uh, is to go deep into the story of the whole church, right? I mean, you're going really, you know, you're mm -hmm. gathering up those roots. So it's in a way you're discovering connections that you might not have known you had. So I think those two are, are deeply related.
Okay, that's really wonderful. You know, I was just reading um, this uh, book that IVP recently published, um, The State of the Evangelical Mind, um, where James K. Smith writes the closing chapter where he said, I think the title of it is something like The Future is Catholic. Um, but he actually makes a similar claim where he says that um, figuring out um, what it means to be Protestant is how we actually are able to be Catholic. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so digging into the, the Protestant tradition, you know, the evangelical tradition, that's what the book is about, um, was, was something that he recommended. Right. So, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Good. I'm not familiar with that. But yeah, I think that's really true. And, you know, because the Reformation and the Protestant, you know, it was it was protesting in order it was certain Luther's original intent in order to build up the whole church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not just, and so unfortunately we have denomination, like, you know, mathematically, you know, we're here, 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 but really the idea of protesting or reforming it's for the sake of the whole. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I think that's really the deepest way we need to think of who we are because we are called to be one. Mm -hmm. Um, in the oneness enables us to offer our distinct gifts more fully to one another. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's true diversity. That's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that's really wonderful. I think we're thinking about the liberal arts, right? And mm -hmm. the blurring of boundaries and- Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you again so much um, for this conversation. You're welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and yeah, I love, I love this kind of conversation. So I'm glad that uh, you're promoting it. Yes. Thank you so much.